Weeks one through six, we looked at the person of Christ. We looked at the person of the Son. Looked at some historical issues, how to think about Jesus, how has the world thought about Jesus, how does the Bible present Jesus. We looked at hermeneutical issues, and then we turned to the Old Testament storyline and and anticipating uh, this Messiah to come. Then we looked at the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ, and then we spent a couple of weeks looking at Nicaea. And the second week, well, also uh, Constantinople, and then looking at Chalcedon, person, nature, distinctions, how are we to think about the Trinity, how are we to think about the Son of God incarnate. Week 7 through the end of the class, however quickly we can get through this material, we are looking at the work of Christ, namely the atonement. Uh, So the first question, and this is a question that uh, J.I. Packer was... um, well-known for asking, wrote an extremely helpful article um, that's available online. First question, number one, is what did the cross achieve? So in the first six weeks, we looked at Matthew 16. Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And now we're going to spend several weeks looking at what did the cross achieve? So 1-1 under that question... To rightly understand the atonement, we must situate the work of Christ in light of the Bible storyline and framework. So to rightly understand the atonement, we must situate the work of Christ in light of the Bible storyline and framework. In other words, if we're going to understand what the cross achieved, then we need to be able to do good biblical theology before we draw systematic theology conclusions. So two, two ways in which we are going to do that over the coming weeks. Um, <clears throat> one, one, one. We're going to look at atonement language. And then one, one, two. This evening, we are going to look at the threefold office. So how do we look at the work of Christ in light of the Bible storyline and framework? We are going to look at atonement language. We'll spend at least a couple of weeks looking at atonement language, possibly possibly three weeks. Um, and tonight, one one two, we will look at the threefold office. So threefold office. We've talked about it several times already, and that is. Prophet, priest, king. Now you'll see that it's threefold office, singular, because they're all coming together in Christ. He's he's accomplishing this threefold office. So what we're going to be doing tonight is we are going to be doing a lot of typology, looking at typological connections, okay? And the biggest one that we'll be looking at, that will really be the springboard, um, is when we look at Romans 5. Who do we see as a contrast in Romans 5? Adam versus who? It's so loud. 
<laughs> it's coming through the guitar amp or whatever. All right, so Adam and what? Adam and who? Adam and Christ. Okay, Adam and Christ. Thank you for that very loud feedback, Chandler. Okay, it's, it's great to have you back, Chan. Great to have you back. Oh, man, so good. Okay, let's look, let's look at Romans 5. <laughs> You're the best. You can tell my wife's here. All right, Romans 5, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sin, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, uh, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type, or a tupos, of the one who was to come. But the free, uh, free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, contrast of Adam Christ, right? Two, two heads of humanity, all right? So Adam... Adam is the head of the old creation. Christ is the head of the new creation. So what we're going to be looking at is um, <clears throat> the threefold office in light of Adam or Adamic topology. All right, so let's start with the first one. Uh, it's... Number two, right? Yep, Christ as prophet. Christ as prophet. So when we look at Adam in the garden, uh, what Paul wants us to see in Romans 5 is that Adam was a type of the one to come. And what that means is that we need to pay careful attention to how Adam was functioning and living, and that's going to inform our understanding of what Christ has done. And so, when we look at, well, before we look at the creation, let's, let's go over the ground rules of topology, right? So, what are, what are the rules that we've gotten from topology that I've given you that I think the scriptures follow? What... Uh, if we're, trying to con if we're trying to say something that constitutes a type, obviously, if Paul tells us that this is a type, or Hebrews tells us that he's a type, or this is a type, then obviously we know that. Um, but there are lots of types in Scripture that Scripture doesn't tell us. This is a tupos. But what, what are these 
typological patterns have in common? No, it doesn't have to be in any particular order. Repetition, is that on? Okay, all right. So there's repetition. Okay, why are we talking about uh, repetition? Uh, well, there is a difference between typology and allegory, okay? We're not doing typological interpretation, okay? That's wrong. We are looking at the typology of the Bible and interpreting it literally according to the intentions of the author. So what sets typology over and against uh, allegory? Repetition. Okay, so repetition. What else? Well, what does repetition mean? I'm going to stop answering you, ask, asking you questions because apparently it won't show up on the podcast. Uh, repetition. We want there to be repetition uh, because script, Scripture is... Are you going to say something? Okay, no, go for it, okay. All right, repetition. First off, that helps us to realize that when we're looking at something in the Old Testament and then we're looking at Christ, here we are not creating some kind of allegory or allegorical interpretation. When there is repetition across Scripture, which is a progressive revelation... God's revealing himself more and more with greater clarity, precision over time in the same way that like in Genesis, there's less clarity than there is in the Gospel of Matthew or in the prophet Isaiah. As God is revealing himself more and more, there is repetition as it relates to certain people and places and things and events, institutions, what have you. Uh, and so, because there's unity in the Scriptures, there's one divine author, right, writing the whole thing, even though there are dozens of different human authors, we can know with repetition, oh, God is trying to make a point. He wants us to see something. It's not us making it up. So, when you hear repetition of the Exodus, not only in the Exodus, the book of Exodus, but that same Exodus language is then applied throughout numerous places in the Old Testament, particularly in the prophets. And then that Exodus language in the prophets is applied to the coming new creation. And then all of a sudden you see Jesus on the scene in, in the Gospel of Matthew. And Matthew says, out of Egypt I called my son. And this was to fulfill you know, Hosea talking about the Exodus. With this repetition, we're like, oh, okay, later authors aren't giving something new meaning. They're giving a fuller meaning. They're giving greater clarity to what God is intending for us to see with this biblical type. So, if it's just a one-for-one, one, like, oh, you know, there's um, that Rahab's scarlet cord and then Jesus. Uh, maybe the early church thought, oh, that's a... that's." Rahab tying that cord out there on her window and it being scarlet points to Jesus. Okay, no, that's not grounded in the text. 
and there's no repetition of a scarlet cord from Rahab across the canon coming across to Jesus. Uh, so repetition helps us, helps to limit what we know Scripture is actually intending for us to understand, be, to be understanding something as a type. What, what else, what else is, is there, what are the other rules for topology that separate it from allegory? One, there's, there's one. Escalation. Escalation. So, escalation. So, when you see Adam, and then you see more Adams, little Adams, across the canon, people who are functioning in similar ways, or the Bible's applying very similar language to later people like Noah. There's not necessarily escalation from Adam to that person or to the next people, but there's always going to be escalation when it comes to who? That's right. So when it gets to Christ, there is escalation when the type moves from type to anti-type. In, in biblical topology, what is Jesus always? The anti-type. All right, what's another rule? What separates topology from allegory? Allegorical interpretation gives a spiritual meaning to something like the scarlet cord, right? That's not grounded in what? Grounded in the word or grounded in the text, right? So topology is grounded in the text. So we're not making up Adam, Adam Christ topology because Paul said that Adam is a type of Christ. Well, it's not, but Paul is not creating that out of thin air. He's saying Adam being repeated in the Old Testament. And so he's simply showing us that the, the escalation from Adam and across all those other Adams, that escalation has found its fulfillment in Christ. So Paul is doing exegesis. He's not, he's not creating new meaning out of thin air. Okay, that's what we need to be careful of. Chandler, hand, call that. Is it on? Okay. Yeah, so allegory um, allegory is a type of literature, type of genre of literature, right? So uh, best example that I can think of is, is Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress. So that's clearly an allegory of the Christian life. So when Bunyan is writing Pilgrim's Progress, he is intending for you to interpret it as allegory. So at the expense, at, at the possible expense of being confusing, you interpret Pilgrim's Progress literally when you read it as allegory. Okay? So to read and interpret something literally is simply to read and interpret something according to its genre or according to the literary device. And so like when you are, are 
you know, calling Brian because Brian used to be fast in high school and he was white lightning. That doesn't mean that he is literal white lightning or that he is like the liquor white lightning. That is just a metaphor that communicates that guy is fast, okay? Lots of, kind of uh, kinds of metaphors that we use all the time. Sunrise, sunset, okay? Sunrise, sunset. I do not, a literal interpretation of that is not to understand you to say, oh, did you see the sunrise this morning? No, you buffoon. The earth rotates around the sun. The sun does not rotate around the earth. The sun does not rise. Well, I mean, that's not what you meant. Uh, and so understanding allegory as a, ter- as a type of genre helps us to constrain how to interpret different types of genre of literature. And so we should be aware of, of what kind of literature something is when we're trying to interpret. So you don't interpret Genesis the exact same way that you interpret um, Proverbs. And you don't read Proverbs and interpret it in the same way that you read Revelation and interpret it. Versus Romans. Versus, you know, Jude. Uh, so you are, you're, trying to, you're trying to ground meaning in the text, biblical types in the text. Um, that is not to say that something like Narnia can't be written like to be understood, similar to Pilgrim's Progress, like this is a picture of the Christian life. Uh, but biblical topology, on the other hand, God intended for you to understand these biblical types that are in the text. And then over the canon, as God is revealing more and more over history, over time, because he didn't just drop the Bible like the Quran to Muhammad. We have the Bible over a couple thousand years of history, human history. God is revealing more and more and more. And there are type, repetition, repetition, repetition across different books of the Bible written by different human authors. But the reason that biblical topology is even possible is because you have one divine author writing and inspiring all the different human authors to write it. And so, biblical topology, later authors are not going to give something new meaning or a different meaning than what earlier authors are giving it. Uh, So, you are not giving a spiritual meaning to the exodus when you were applying the exodus to the work of Jesus. Because the exodus was primarily intended to explain the work of Jesus. Secondarily, which again, very, very, very important, the exodus was the most significant act of redemption in the history of Israel. But even that is secondary to the bigger, uh, bigger purpose of the exodus, and that is to explain the salvation of the coming Messiah. And so that we're just reading the Bible on its own terms, in its own categories. And so Paul wants us to read Adam as a type of Christ, as someone who, in a shadowy kind of way, pointed forward to uh, Jesus in a variety of different ways that are unfolded in the text across, across history. Does that explain? I mean, I, I know that you weren't here when we talked about topology the first time. Um, all right, so... When there's repetition, we can, we can be sure that we're not giving something new meaning. When there's escalation, we are understanding that Jesus is the actual fulfillment of all the biblical types. When it's grounded in the text, it protects us 
from giving something spiritual meaning that is not grounded in God's intentions. So we're not doing allegorical interpretation. So what, what can be a biblical type? Person, place, event, institution. Okay, so a person can be a type, Adam. A place can be a type, the holy city. Or the Eden, the garden. An event can be a type, the exodus. An institution can be a type, like the Levitical sacrificial system. Like that, that can, these are all can serve as types. And so as we're reading the Bible, we need to be aware of like similar language, older language, previous language in the Bible being uh, repeated under new authors to apply fuller meaning to something that is ultimately pointing to Jesus. Um, okay, so Christ as prophet, now that we've laid out the, laid out the rules for, I think, the, the biblical rules for topology, understanding topology, what uh, we're talking about Jesus as prophet, we've got to start with Adam. We've got to start with Adam. Um, all right, so in Adam, what we see is like, like a, a proto-prophet, priest, and king, right? So how does, how does Adam function as a prophet? Right, and then ultimately after that, to all of his offspring, because he is the father of the human race, right? Um, so we're only looking at, at Adam in terms of the Adamic typology, in terms of prophet, priest, and king tonight. But we know we've already gone through it repeatedly. We, we can see the connections in Adamic typology between Adam and Noah and Abraham and Israel and David and Christ. Same kind of language, be fruitful and multiply. Subdue the earth. Um, same kind of issues happening with Noah. Noah's the, the head of a new creation. And he, there's sin and uh, nakedness and shame after his sin with the fruit, just like there was with Adam. Uh, God promises to make Abraham's name great and to make him the father of many nations. Um, Israel is, is God's son in Exodus 4. Let my son go that he might worship me. Adam is presented as the son of God. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, with, with regard to prophet, let's walk through that edemic topology. We've already done it. We're not going to rehearse it again. So with Noah as prophet, same kind of thing, right? Like the Lord's judged the earth. Only Noah and his family are left. And so who is it up to to tell tell all of the offspring of Noah, hey, be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth. Don't, don't take a man's life because he's made in the image of God. Otherwise, we're going to take your life because that man imaged God. Noah. That's Noah's responsibility, to communicate God's word to the people. All right, then we have Abraham, right? Now, with Abraham, we have this is universal, this is universal, and now, like, there's much, much tighter funnel, right? 
Now it's zeroing in on a particular people, offspring of a particular guy, amidst many, many men who were living in the world at the time in Genesis 10 and 11. So with Abraham, now Abraham is communicating particular promises to his offspring, right? And so we see that promise, those promises being played out in the life of his offspring, Israel. So this is where, this is where like the typology of the office of prophet becomes, there's a lot more clarity when we get to Israel, okay? So, and, and, it, come, and it comes in two ways. One is you have, you have the office of prophet. Like you have Old Testament prophets. Like they will come, they will come later. Um, but you've got Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, you've got Elijah, Elisha, you've got the school of Old Testament prophets, many of whom we, we don't even know. We don't have God's revelations through them recorded in Scripture, but we know that that was revelation. So the office of prophets itself, we don't, we don't really see that before then. We do see it in the nation of Israel because this threefold office that, that Adam really encompassed fairly well in Eden now it's getting split in the nation of Israel. But who else do we see other than the office of prophet in Israel? Moses. I mean, and in Israel, prior to David, Moses is, is really of, like, gives a really clear picture of Adam, right? So, like, is he a leader or ruler of God's people? Yeah. Leads the people into the, uh, into the wilderness, out of, out of Egypt. He doesn't inherit the promised land. So that's where he fails. Um, but he's leading, he's leading God's people. Uh, what else? He's, he's a Levite. I mean, the Lord won't deal with Israel except through Moses. <laughs> Moses is the only faithful one, right? Uh, but then with, with Moses, Moses is a prophet. And so what, what we've talked about it before. What do we see in Deuteronomy 18? There's a promise that Moses gives in Deuteronomy 18. Beginning in verse 15. Yes, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. I will raise up for them, verse 18, for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Uh, so Moses is saying, hey, after me, God's going to raise up another prophet like me. Okay, well, wh what does it mean to be a prophet like 
Moses. Uh, Numbers 12. In Numbers 12, Miriam and Aaron oppose Moses, right? Do you remember this, this story? Yeah, that's right. Go ahead and say it again. That's right. So he, Aaron, Aaron and Moses, or Aaron and Miriam are uh, are saying like, you know what? God doesn't just speak to Moses. Like we can, God can speak to us too. Who, you know, who's Moses? Honestly, you know, he's our brother. We we know what he's really like. And the Lord responds to him and says, "Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses." He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And then Miriam gets leprosy. Um, So, in terms of prophecy, we're going to talk about it in the coming weeks. In 1 Corinthians, but if we're going to understand prophecy... Biblically, prophecy is as as Jesus or as the Lord is talking about in in Numbers twelve, like the Lord making Himself known through a vision or or through a dream. So it's this idea of like spontaneous revelation from the Lord, given to the prophet, that the prophet then gives to the people. So it's different from a pastor. It's different from preaching. Because I'm, I'm, Drew or I are, are taking the text, we're, we're working through the prophetic word, and then we're working out all the implications that we can think of for our particular congregation and saying, do this in light of this text. Whereas a prophet is like, receiving the word, and then thus says the Lord. So it's, as much as some people want to say it is an act of authority, exercising authority over someone uh, to be a prophet, and therefore women can't do it. Well, Deborah was a prophet in the Old Testament. There were prophetesses in the New Testament. Uh, Miriam, Miriam was a prophetess. Anna was a prophetess uh, at the birth of Jesus in the temple. And then the three uh, daughters of Philip are prophetesses in the book of Acts. And so how, do we, how can we like, navigate between preaching and prophecy? Well, preaching is, is authoritative, taking the text and saying, you must do it in light of this. And then the other is spontaneous revelation where the prophet or the prophetess is simply a medium through whom the Lord is speaking to the people. Does that make sense? So Moses, Moses is different, the Lord says. I speak to him face to face, mouth to mouth. And then Moses that's uh, <clears throat> in Numbers 12. Where did I put my blue market marker? Um, so in Numbers 12, the Lord reveals how he talks to Moses. And then Moses later in Deuteronomy 18 then says, there's going to be a prophet who, who comes who's, who's going to speak to you like me. And we, we see in Hebrews 3 the same kind of language being taken 
uh, from Numbers 12. Right? The author of Hebrews is saying, Moses was a, was a faithful servant in all of God's house. But Jesus is better. In the same way that a son is better than the servant. The son who owns the house is better than the servant who serves in the house. So, we have, we have Moses and Israel, and we have who, who comes, who comes uh, after, after Moses, uh, but before, there we go, uh, but before uh, the Old Testament prophets. Uh, yes, I'm think I'm th- I'm thinking later than Joshua. Um, he is probably the epitome in the Old Testament of Adam, David. How is David serving serving as a as a prophet? How's David serving as a prophet? I mean, he wrote. Yeah, he wrote at least a third, maybe half of the Psalms, right? And uh, Deuteronomy 17, it was the requirement of the, the king of Israel to know God's law, that he, he might obey it and be able to lead God's people in it. Uh, and then after that, we see Old Testament prophets, right? Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Hosea, Haggai, Amos. All these guys, major and minor prophets. And they're providing greater and greater clarity about the coming Messiah. And, and they're beginning to blend a lot of these king and prophet and priest and Eden and new creation and exodus and all these kinds of things to describe the coming of the, of the Savior. And then finally we get escalation, right? To who? Christ. So how how is how is Christ the uh, the great prophet? Well, author of Hebrews and Hebrews one, I'll answer it. Rhetorical. Hebrews one says in many ways, in many times, in many ways, our fathers or the, the Lord spoke to our fathers through the prophets, but now He has spoken to us through His Son. Uh, and so the Son is. The great prophet to whom Moses pointed and promised, and all of these other prophets kind of pointed to. Um, but he's not just the great prophet, he is the Word made flesh. So, more important than like being the last guy to tell you stuff, he is God's revelation. Like, he is the fullness of God's revelation who's, who's come in the flesh. Uh, what does he say? What does he say to uh, his disciples in John 14? Uh, I can't remember if it's Philip. Um, let's see. Yeah, it is Philip. Philip said to him, "Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us." Jesus said to him, "Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father." How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me 
does his works, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on accounts of the works themselves. So Jesus, again, the Word made flesh, the Son who says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So he is Christ as the great prophet, is the one who brings uh, the fullness of God's revelation uh, to us. And so, so we're thinking about the work of Christ, all of these guys from really from Moses on are starting to, to tell us uh, more and more about this coming Savior who's going to save. Moses starts it for us by telling us about Genesis 3 with the promise of a son who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And then Moses is the one who tells us about the promise to Abraham the son through whom the nations will be blessed. And then uh, Moses is the one who tells us about himself and Israel, the Lord revealing himself to the people of Israel and establishing the office of prophet. Uh, And then the rest of the Old Testament unfolds David and the Old Testament prophets talking about this future, future prophet to come, this future king, this future savior helping to outline this is, this is who he is, this is what he's going to look like. And then Jesus gets on the scene, and John the Baptist says, that, that's the one. That's, that's the guy that everything in the Old Testament was talking about. Uh, the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Uh, John the Baptist being the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. Uh, so Christ as prophet, that's how we need to understand Um, we need to begin to understand the cross and the work of Christ by seeing that Christ is prophet. And Christ as the prophet is the one who best describes the work that he is going to accomplish to save his people in obedience to the Father by the Spirit. Any any questions before we move away from Christ as prophet? This is like 60,000 foot. Yeah, he goes through, I mean, he goes through a lot of the Ten Commandments, right? Right. Uh, If you'll remember when we did the putting together the Bible discipleship class, um, we talked about the functions of the law. Again, the law that Moses gave. Uh, Moses and the prophets. Jesus is going to say Luke 24, He's going to say at least in two different occasions to the road uh, on the road to Emmaus with those two disciples, and then with his disciples are in the room together. He's going to he's going to say Moses and the prophets pointed to me, like to me. Um, and uh, what what we're going to <clears throat> thinking through. Um, <clears throat> When Moses gives the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, and then Jesus comes on the scene in the uh, Beatitudes, uh, on the Sermon on the Mount, he's going, Jesus is going to give greater clarity to the intentions of the commandments themselves. You've heard it said, do not murder. But God didn't just mean don't kill a guy. You've heard it said this, but I tell you, I mean, who else has authority to do that other than the Word made flesh? I, you know, the, the law says thou shalt not murder. 
But I tell you, don't even hate a man. So if you hate a man, you, you hate your brother, you've murdered him in your heart. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I tell you, don't lust. If you lust after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery. And so, yes, this idea of escalation is certainly true as it relates to the law as revealed by Christ, reinterpreted. So, like, we think about, oh, we're, the, the Ten Commandments are wonderful, wonderful, yeah, absolutely, wonderful laws, fantastic. I'd argue that we're not under them as a, as a covenant, because they're a part of the old covenant package. We're under something greater, heightened, more serious. We're under the law of Christ, to which the Ten Commandments could only point dimly. Um, all right, any, any other comments? Excellent comment. Thoughts, questions about that before we move to the next Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about Samuel as it relates to Christ as king. But uh, ultimately, I mean, the office of prophet in the nation of Israel, uh, just like the office of priest or the office of king, is going to give us just greater clarity on what exactly Jesus is doing when he comes on the scene. Um, <clears throat> I mean, that's who people think that he is in Matthew 16. Like, who, who do you say, or who do people say that I am? Well, a prophet. Why? Because he's one who's teaching with authority or he's giving new revelation. You've heard it said, I tell you this. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, we shouldn't, we shouldn't see Samuel and then see, oh, Samuel is a type of Christ because I don't think there's rep repetition as it relates to Samuel per se, but we can say Samuel as a prophet is a part of the broader topology of, of prophet as it moves from Adam to Christ. So Samuel is just one of many of these guys who are serving in the office of prophet in the nation of Israel. God is speaking through them in order to reveal himself to the nation of Israel. Um, and so at the end of the day, Samuel has the great, uh, I mean, the grace and the gift from the Lord to be able to introduce to us David who is really the, I mean, he is the height of Old Testament uh, greatness, you know, in a, in a fallen world. Um, so he's in a very privileged position in the same kind of way that John the Baptist had a, the privilege of presenting Christ. Um, so again, office of prophet, the prophets revealed God's truth to God's people. And so in my mind, Samuel is just in a, in a line of long, a long line of faithful prophets. You know, revealing God's word to God's people. But even Samuel, I mean, even Samuel is kind of like Moses because he's a judge. You know, so like he's, he's uh, dimly kind of like a, a Moses with, a, with a, at least a prophet and a king. Uh, I mean, he, he's raised in Eli's, Eli's house in the priesthood, you know. So he's, a, he's like a, an even fainter 
Moses. I think Moses, Adam and Moses are clearer pictures. But Samuel's the same, same kind of thing. Again, faintly, pointing forward to Jesus. All right, I'm going to erase this. If that's, all right. All right, uh, third is uh, Christ as priest. Christ as priest. <clears throat> okay, so, so you know what? We're going to start all the way on the left. All right, who, who are we going to start with? With priestly topology. Aha, you could see it. You could see it. All right, Adam. How does, how does Adam function as a priest? Just briefly. What is a priest? <laughs> For God's people? Okay. How else? Think about it in terms of the other direction. You've got, you've got from... The vertical down to up. Think about up down. Going from God to the people. What does a priest do? We think of Jesus as our great me, medi, mediator, right? So the priest mediates God's presence to the people, right? Adam did that in the garden. God gave Adam the command, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, exercise dominion over it. He was to fill the earth, take God's presence as an image bearer, take God's presence to the ends of the earth, expand the boundaries of the garden. Uh, and Adam enjoyed God's presence in its fullness, right? Like he walked with the Lord. I mean, the Lord doesn't have legs, but, you know, the anthropomorphic language, right? So Jesus has legs. But the Lord in the garden didn't, right? So the Lord manifested himself to Adam. Uh, and Adam walked with God. Obviously, sin severed that, right? And so you see, you see sin come in, and all of a sudden, with the introduction of sin, there's a, there's a bit of a change with the priesthood, right? So mediating God's presence to the people require something i think you see it in genesis 3 a glimpse with with clothing adam and eve right because they're naked and ashamed like you had to give them skins from some animal to to clothe them right so something's got to die in order for your shame to be covered right uh and then i mean that's when you see like adam offering sacrifices you know cain and abel offering sacrifices uh, Noah, same thing, offering sacrifices, right? We're not going to spend a lot of time going into the details of uh, Noah, but uh, stopping here at Abraham, how does Abraham function as a priest? Y'all are slowly moving up closer and closer to the board. Okay. No, no, I, what? It was on mute. 
He executes a covenant. Okay, all right. With uh, Genesis 15, slaughtering of animals and stuff? Okay. All right. How, how does he, uh, when you're looking at the Old Testament priesthood, the priest doing their work and the sacrifices, uh, how, do you, how, do you see, how do you see him doing the same thing with sacrifice? Just answer the question, Chandler. You know the answer. Yeah. There are, two, there are two places, two places. Isaac, Genesis 22, right? Okay, all right, so there's Genesis 22 and the offering of Isaac. All right, so offering of Isaac, Genesis 22, Abraham's acting as a priest. The Lord provides a ram as a substitute for Isaac. In Genesis 17, what's, what's Genesis 17? That's the covenant of what? You, you can. No, it's right. That's correct. Circumcision. Um, all right, so circumcision. How is that relevant to um, priestly? Because in uh, ancient Near Eastern culture, particularly in the nation of Egypt, um, the only people who were circumcised were the priests. And so Abraham and all of his offspring have to be circumcised. And then after, after that, with Israel, what, is, what does God call Israel? He also calls us. A royal priesthood. And all of Israel, like Israel has to be circumcised, right? Uh, so in, in Israel, you see Moses. How's Moses serving as a priest? What clan is he a part of? Tribe. He is a Levite. Uh, what's Aaron? Yeah, but uh, yes, he isn't. Aaron is uh, Aaron's the first what in Israel? He's the first high priest in Israel. What does Aaron have to do? Uh, Leviticus sixteen, Day of Atonement. Like, what does he do in the Tabernacle Temple? Yeah, sacrifice animals, right? So like Day of Atonement that kills one goat, sprinkles the, sprinkles the blood on the uh, mercy seat. And uh, yeah, all the stuff covered in blood. Uh, and then he sends another goat away, right? Puts the sins of the people, puts his hands on theirs, representation and substitution. Sends the animal away into the wilderness where wilderness is judgment from God. Uh, and the other animal dies. And its blood, it covers the mercy seat and the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. Um, but when we, uh, we look at later high priests, who are, they, who are they sons of? Aaron. So the high priesthood continues in perpetuity, right? Um, now, we skipped over it over here, and we'll come back to it in just a minute. Hold on to your seat, Chandler. Um, First high priest is Aaron. His sons serve as high priests. Um, and it's here under Moses in the wilderness that you have the beginnings of the tabernacle, right? 
the tent, tent of meaning. So what, who surrounded the tabernacle? What tribe? The Levites, right? So the Levites, the Levites surrounded the tabernacle to guard the presence of the Lord. So there's, there's the, from bottom to top, like interceding for the people, top to bottom, mediating, but also like protecting God's holiness, right? Uh, so like when Phineas sees the guy in open sexual morality in Numbers 23, 23, I think, uh, what does he do? He, he stabs the guy with a spear and the woman, caught in the act, stabs them, averts the wrath of God. God says, you have a perpetual priesthood. You have propitiated my wrath by, by killing them. He cares about my holiness as the guy was committing flagrant sexual immorality in the presence of the tent of meeting. Uh, in the Garden of Eden, uh, when they got booted out, what, what direction did they get booted out? East, right? So out of the east they got booted, and there's an angel of the Lord at the eastern gate of Eden protecting God's place, God's dwelling, right? Not allowing anybody in. Where's the entrance to the tabernacle? On the east, right? So the Levites are protecting the Lord's. This is just in Numbers 2, I think. Uh, the entrance of the tabernacle is the east, and Judah is the, is the tribe that's on the eastern side, and then all the other ten uh, tribes, other than Levites and Judah, surround the tent of meeting. So as a royal priesthood, the Levites became priests because they slapped swords on their sides and killed all the people who were worshiping the golden calf, right? So the priests are the ones who are zealous for God's glory. Right? Protecting His holiness. Guarding the holiness of God. The entire nation is a royal priesthood. They're all circumcised. They're all meant to protect the, the tabernacle, the presence of the Lord, from that which is unholy. And it's really in Israel, particularly in the Levitical sacrificial system, that we start to see like, okay, women, if you're bleeding, you cannot come into the camp. You have to, like, you are unclean. If there are discharges, you are unclean. So like with these Levitical laws, we start to understand like, are, are those people like, are they somehow more tainted because they have bleeding or discharge? I mean, ontologically, no. But under the Old Covenant, they are. Why? Because under the Old Covenant, the, these pictures are given to us to help us to understand are the necessity of us needing to be covered by blood. Us needing to be cleansed. My main problem isn't a discharge. My main problem is, is sin. And that needs to be covered. And so we, we find in the book of Leviticus, without the shedding of blood, that what? There's no forgiveness of sins. Right? Um, <clears throat> but Aaron is the first high priest dies. Sons take, him over, take over, and they're even worse, because they, they offer uh, unsanctioned censors, <laughs> uh, right, or whatever, and they get struck down. Phineas is great, grandson, and then after that, like, the problem that the book of, he the author of Hebrews tells us is, like, 
The priests keep dying. And then they have to offer sacrifices for their own sin before they can do any intercession on behalf of the people. And so, <clears throat> from there you, uh, sorry, you move to, um, I mean under here you see tabernacle. Then we go to David. How does David function as a priest? He ushers the Holy of Holies into the Jerusalem, right? He's doing the dancing, right? Yeah, yeah. Wearing the ephod, which is the, 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 the head covering of the priest, right? Wearing the ephod, bringing God's presence into God's place, the city, the holy city, Jerusalem. He wants to build God a temple. And God says, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. And then he writes Psalm 110, and this is where we go back. He writes Psalm 110, and all the way back to Genesis 14 in Melchizedek. And what does, he, what does David say in Psalm 110? Uh, the Lord said to my Lord. Okay, so David's Lord. God says to my Lord, and I don't think that he means it just as like, my king, I think he means more than that. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. I'm going to make your enemies a footstool under your feet. And then later, and I'm going to make you a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So David blends kingly and priestly together and talks about his son, being the king and the priest, but he's not a king and a priest at, like a Levite. He's a king and a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He's going to be a priest forever. Author of Hebrews is going to help us to understand that. We'll talk about that more. Um, and then where do, we, where do we see, I mean, Solomon builds the temple, offers like, I mean, untold number of animal sacrifices at the, the very beginning of it. Right, but then he leads the nation away. And then escalation ultimately to Christ. Christ is the high priest of the new covenant. Throughout the Gospel of John, he's constantly interceding for his people, praying for Peter that he, that he would hold up under temptation. Uh, he's praying for his disciples. He prays for us in John 17 that we might be one. Um, <clears throat> Hebrews, author of Hebrews in Hebrews uh, 5, uh, with loud supplications and cries, the Lord hears uh, Jesus' prayers and supplications as a high priest. He's heard because of his reverence. He's doing that for us, not for him. So we see Jesus. So when we're looking at the atonement, we're looking at the work of Christ. This is so very important. The Bible casts his work in light of Israel's high priesthood. So when we're talking about the nature of the atonement, when we're talking about the extent of the atonement, for whom did Christ die, what did the cross achieve, what is the nature of Christ's work, 
we cannot understand it apart from understanding Israel's high priestly duties. Like the work of the high priest in Israel. This high priest and the Levitical sacrificial system, so very important and pointing forward to Jesus so that we could understand what God was doing in Christ. So like blood, blood laws, cleanliness, all of these things, all these Levitical laws were meant not to rip them out of the context and then try and reapply them in the new covenant. We're trying to understand how Jesus has fulfilled them and how they now we now obey in light of Christ's high priesthood. Uh, but Leviticus, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. So in Jesus, you've got both the priest and the animal sacrifice, right? Like old, old covenant animal sacrifice and high priest, wrapped up to, into one, the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. But the Son of God's blood can. All right, any, any questions about... I, I, I've always found this interesting... David, uh, David sinned with Bathsheba. There was no, under the Old Covenant, there was no sacrifice for that. There was no atonement for that under the Old Covenant. That kind of flagrant murder and adultery, like there was no animal sacrifice was there to exist to, to end the Old Covenant Levitical system to cover that sin. And then on top of that, there is no Moabite to the 10th generation Who's supposed to be able to go into the temple? And who was, uh, who was David's great-grandmother? Ruth, a Moabite. So, like, what are, we, what are we already seeing? Like, I mean, just grace. Absolute grace. That's why, like, I mean, Psalm 51, the, the David's desperation in Psalm 51, and he's like, man, if I could offer, if I could offer uh, bulls and uh, sacrifices for sin, like I know you don't delight in sacrifice. Sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Uh, I mean, he is just casting himself upon the grace and mercy of the Lord. But ultimately, he's pointing forward to someone who can actually provide the forgiveness that the Old Covenant Levitical system cannot. Does that make sense? There's no, there's no, there's no sacrifice for those, those kinds of intentional sins. Like, if he's not, yeah. Yeah, stoned. Yeah. Why did they not, why did they not kill him? I'm sure there are a variety of reasons why. Uh, first off, God had installed him as king. Secondly, I don't know that anyone would have been able to have stoned him because Joab would not have let them. Uh, thirdly, I think that it points to the insufficiency of the, of the system itself. Like, it's intended to show, like, David is a man after God's own heart, and clearly the Lord is committed to David. And he still fails so miserably, and yet the Lord never leaves him. I mean, David will say that in the, in the Psalms, like, I'm an old man, and, and what I've seen is like, yeah, the Lord is never, I've never seen the righteous forsaken. I mean, he lumps himself in there. Why? Not because he's a great guy, and not because there's something in the Levitical system that can cover his sins. 
purely the grace of the Lord. I mean, David is looking forward, Psalm 110, to a son to come who's going to be a priest forever. But he's not going to be a priest like a Levite. He's going to be a priest like Melchizedek, who's greater than Abraham. All right. Uh, we can talk more about that afterwards. I want to get through Christ is King. Uh, number what, four? Number four. Christ is King. So if we're thinking about, uh, I mean, in Christ now, we are a royal priesthood. Same as Israel, but with greater power. Because we have the Spirit. And uh, if, if, um, if the Lord called Israel to guard the temple, the Levites in particular, to surround the temple and to protect God's presence, like, how do you think that should inform like, meaningful membership in the local church? If, like, New Covenant believers, since we are in Christ, we have become spiritual temples, like we are the temple of God, temple of Christ, like, should we not protect the purity of God's presence in local church? Absolutely we should do. And I would say as a Baptist, believing in regenerate church membership, we do that by maintaining meaningful membership. All right, Adam, Adam to Noah. Right, Adam is a king. How? God says, yeah, subdue the earth, exercise dominion, right? Same thing to Noah, right? Same command, given. All right, and then to Abraham. How's it seen in Abraham? There's a particular promise in that, circum that covenant of circumcision. Through whom the nations will be blessed, kings will come from you. Kings will come from you, Abraham. Your name's going to be great, Genesis 17. Okay, and then Israel, again, a royal priesthood, royal, kingly. Uh, Israel, let go of my son, uh, Israel is my son, let my son go that he might worship with me. Image of God, sonship in ancient Near East. Only the king was the son of God. And God is saying, no, 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 no. Corporately, this entire nation of people, they are, they, they are kings. Obviously, we see that very, very clearly in, in the life of Moses, who's leading the people. That's Miriam gets leprosy because she complains about it. Um, before you even get to Moses, though, what, there's this little glimpse, right, in Genesis 49, the blessing to all of Abra uh, Abraham's uh, great-grandsons, the 12 sons of Israel. In Genesis 49, Judah, the scepter, will never depart from your tribe. Already kings are gonna kings are gonna come through Abraham, reflecting Adam. Kings are gonna come through Abraham, specifically through Judah. Israel, Moses, Moses is a Levite, he's not from Judah. But then who do we see who is from Judah? Not Saul. Saul's from Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin. And Saul is a he, he's a king like the kings of the nations around them. The, the people want Samuel. They pester Samuel. Give us a king like the nations around us. And what does God give them? A king like the nations around them. But is he the promised king? No, because God had already promised to Judah that the scepter wouldn't 
depart from the tribe of Judah. So who do we see? David. Keeps coming back to this guy. David. Tribe of Judah. 2 Samuel 7. I'm going to give you a son. He's going to rule on the throne forever. I'm going to build your house, David. So we see in 2 Samuel 7. But then, actually, right here. Was it Numbers Numbers 24? Where God, through the false prophet Balaam, says of Israel, their king, he's going to be, these people's king, he's going to be mightier than any king of the nations. And then David comes on the scene, 2 Samuel 7. What does he say, what does he say of the son in Psalm 2? Like Balaam has already said in Numbers 24 that this king of Israel is going to be greater than the, the ones of the nations, right? And then in Psalm 2, what does David say? All the kings are going to bow down to the son. Kiss the son, lest he become angry with you. And what does the son have in Psalm 2? That was promised to Judah. In Psalm 2, what is it? It's a begotten son, right? Begotten, not made. Judah was promised what? A scepter. In Psalm 2, that son who the king, the kingly son who all the kings are going to bow down to, he's going to have what? An iron scepter? And then Psalm 110, we just talked about it. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, and I will, make you, I will put your enemies under your feet as a footstool. But then it's that same king, son of David, with an iron scepter, who's also going to be the priest after the order of Melchizedek. And Balaam's already told us he's going to be a king that's greater than the one of the nations. Psalm 2 picks that back up. He's going to be son of God, the promised one of Abraham, and he's going to reflect Adam. And David looks really, really great, right? David looks fantastic. But then there's the whole Bathsheba thing, the whole Uriah thing, the whole pride in the census thing. David's house is a complete mess with all of his wives and all the different children who are all terrible. And Solomon looks really good. And then Solomon disobeys Deuteronomy 17 in basically every way. The, the charge of the kings, obey, keep a copy of the law and obey it. Don't marry foreign wives. Don't accumulate a bunch of wealth. Don't have a bunch of horses and chariots. And like Solomon just like blows the doors wide open on all those things, right, later in life. And the rest of the Davidic kings, the nation is torn into two with Rehoboam. And like who's great after David and Solomon? I mean, there's Hezekiah, but even, even him, he like, he shows... Babylonians, the storehouse, and then says, well, at least it won't be my problem. And my son, Josiah, but then Josiah ignores the Egyptian pharaoh and is like, I don't have a problem with you. And he's killed at a young age. Who, who is there until, dun da 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 Christ. And then all of a sudden you've got Matthew and Luke giving you Davidic genealogies, right? 
You've got, Son of David, Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. You've got the uh, palm branches. Hosanna in the highest. Uh, you've got the king of the Jews. And the crown of thorns. You've got the resurrection. That's pretty kingly. I mean, for real. Like, I mean, what better way to, to show that you're the king by, like, letting people kill you and then you come back to life to an indestructible life? That's pretty kingly. And then what? Like, the ascension. The ascension is huge. Ascending to the right hand of the Father, and then what? He has the authority to pour out the Spirit as it was promised in the Old Testament. Outpouring of the Spirit, and then, like, final judgment. I mean, he's going to be the judge. And so, and uh, we see in Hebrews 1, after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Father, having inherited a name that is greater than that of angels. Well, that great name was first promised here. And so we see across the storyline, there's just more and more clarity, more and more precision, more understanding to help us t- to see clearly, like, oh, this is what the Savior's going to do. I mean, we didn't even talk about the Old Testament prophets. They pick up Psalm 110, and they are combining Davidic king and priesthood and a future temple that has no height, except for people who stand on top of each other. Length and width, inside joke. Anyway. <laughs> Author of Hebrews is really going to explain all prophet, priest, and king really, really well. It hammers that away. We will talk about that in the weeks to come. But um, this threefold office is going to help us to understand what Jesus has done as we press into the atonement language that the, that the Bible gives, of, gives us, particularly, particularly Christ's priesthood. So we're going to spend a lot of weeks, uh, at least two or three, working through all the different language, particularly priestly language, that is assigned to priesthood and atonement, what it's accomplishing, so that when we see Jesus dying on the cross, we have a really good understanding of what he's actually doing for us. Any, any questions or comments before we, before we close it out? What? Nothing I'm asking out loud. Are you sure? You don't think it's a good enough question for everybody to know? 100%, okay. <laughs> All right, that's fine. We will, oh, you have several? Come on, ask them. That's fine. Don't ask all of them. That's fine. Whichever ones are like super secret questions, we can talk about it. We can talk about it. Uh, The incarnate son did not become incarnate until Mary. Does Eden still exist? Um, I mean... There doesn't seem to be any indication that it stopped existing, like with an angel guarding the, the eastern gate. 
I don't know that we can see it in the same way that like the Lord opens the eyes of people in the book of Genesis and they're able to see things like Hagar, able to see wells and water and all that kind of stuff. So we want to say it's in another dimension or something. We could say that, but in some ways I just think that we're blind to it. But ultimately, Eden is pointing to Jesus and to the new creation. Is Eden heaven? No. That's it? Okay. Yes. I wrote a whole book on it. You haven't read my book. Oh. I dedicated it to you, though. I dedicated. It's pretty bad when your wife doesn't, even your wife doesn't read your own book. I think the only people who've read my book are the ones that had to read it. And that's okay. <laughs> hey, good, because I talk about all kinds of womanly things, womanly things, especially in the Old Covenant, Old Covenant law. Yes, marriage is a type. I think that Paul makes that clear in Ephesians 5, but Genesis 2, marriage is then presented as a relationship between Yahweh and Israel. Israel is cast as an, a faithless bride. Repetition, escalation, it's an institution, it's grounded in creation, grounded in the text. God divorces Israel in the book of Jeremiah. Mm-hmm. Gives them a certificate of divorce. Jesus, Jesus comes on the scene and he is presented as the bridegroom. His first miracle is at a wedding. We have the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then Paul is not creating something out of thin air when he says, hey, this mystery is profound, but I tell you that Genesis 2.24 is ultimately finding its fulfillment in Christ and his church. Paul's not creating that out of thin air. The Bible has already presented it from Genesis to Ephesians 5 at that point. But with even greater clarity in Revelation. What, Revelation 19? Marriage Supper? Yes, but marriage is definitely a type. Uh, and the reason why... Um, If we understand marriage topology, we'll understand better Jesus' response to the Sadducees. That, like, you don't know the scriptures. Not only do you deny the resurrection, but you should know that people aren't going to be married. Why? Because it points to me. It finds its fulfillment in me. We're always going to be married to Jesus in a new covenant union. We won't always be married to our earthly spouses in this old creation. It will have reached its zenith.